tell us? Is there another one of him on your side? Yes, there is. Is he as loyal and true as mine? He's a good man. Oh, I'm sorry he didn't come with you. Wouldn't that have been something, Benjamin? <laughs> Two of you by my side. and welcome back to Games of Future Past. I'm Boris, with me is Sean, and we have a great special returning guest today, Matan. Matan, say hello. Now, in Games of Future Past, for those of you who don't know, uh, Sean and myself, and sometimes a guest, discuss and compare an old game, a classic, you could say, and a newer one. Uh, a game that does something similar to the old one, Maybe improves it, maybe changes it, sometimes it's plainly bad. But uh, today we're actually doing a change in the formula. Uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. But before we get to the main event, let's talk about life. One life, one life, one life. Sean, what you've been up to? Uh, nothing much. The semester has started and I'm teaching at uh, two... Institutes of higher learning one uh, particular interesting course that I have started teaching is Introduction to gaming at Tel Aviv University. That's Ooh. nice. That's nice Which does not come as much as a surprise given what I've been doing on this show But I will say one interesting thing that came up today was that as I was talking to my students and asking them You know, what is your experience with video games? One statement that seemed to come up over and over again was this idea of You know, I only like narrative games, so I guess I'm not a gamer. I've only ever played Bubble Bobble, so I guess I'm not a gamer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I only like Heavy Rain, so I guess I'm not a okay. gamer. And I'm like, you guys are all gamers. By definition, you are playing games. You're familiar with games. Even if that engagement was... 10, 20 years ago, I had one of my students said, you know, oh, I, I play sometimes on the PlayStation, but mostly on my cell phone. I'm like, that counts. I mean, that raises a question, though. The fact that we have, like, a word, gamer, we don't have it for someone who watches a movie or not a watcher. Well, if but you watch, no, but, no, but, you, but are you, a, you are a film buff. Yeah, exactly. Buff. But you, if you just watched Jaws, you're not a film buff. Right. You are a guy who watches movies sometimes. Right. So the question really is whether gamer is someone who plays games, because then, yeah, anyone who played on their phone is a gamer. But if a gamer is like a film buff for games, then that's, well, re- I mean, this is I an interesting like question. This conversation isn't new, but I think that uh, it did evolve. Like, we do have new things to, to talk about them right now, because this world became very loaded, especially surrounding Gamergate, of course. And, uh, like, it was the time where... Uh, A lot of uh, game critics said, I'm not a gamer, gamer is a bad world, and all that stuff. Yeah. It's a lot of gatekeeping that I really, from my perspective, what I was saying to them was, we were talking about this whole problematic definition of gamers and games, and that whole argument of, like, walking simulators yeah. came yeah. up. And I said, if you have to push a button 
in order to walk and the game will not walk for you, then it's a game and you're playing the, a game. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, what I'm saying is that, like, uh, I feel the conversation evolves and in a year or two, it will be, like, people won't be embarrassed to say, I just play games, I'm not a gamer. Now, right now, it's still in a transitional phase, but your students, they want to be considered as gamers on one hand, but they don't feel like they are because they didn't, they don't deserve it. Yeah, they didn't earn the rank. But I think that the main thing here is the agenda. I mean, not agenda in, like, the bad sense, but we all want as many people to experience games. As many people as Ideally, possible. Ideally, sure. So we want people to consider themselves as gamers because when they don't, they just don't play games. Yeah. They say, yeah, I'm not a gamer, so I don't play games. But we want them to play games. So we really want to encourage them to be gamers. So I think in that regard, you did very good. <laughs> it reminds me of a very funny story. A friend of ours, Matan's and mine, named Tomer, he's studying in Denmark now. He studies comics. He writes comics. And one of the people, a guy he studies with, considers himself as a casual gamer. He calls himself a very casual gamer, and he completed Dark Souls 2, and he loved the shit out of this game. So those definitions are already very wobbly. Like, you would, like, Dark Souls is automatically a hardcore game. Like, if you play Dark Souls, you're a capital G gamer. You know what the funny thing? But the guy considers himself casual, and he never played anything other than Dark Souls, which is at that level of... Yeah, and the funny thing is that I met another guy who wasn't a gamer and completed Dark Souls. Okay. I mean, it's so weird, but I mean, I love it. Which uh, reminds me of our conversation, Sean. Dark Souls isn't an accessible. The marketing makes it seem inaccessible. It's actually a very accessible game. Well, there's that and there's the community around Dark Souls, right? Like, I feel like a lot of resistance to the idea of, you know, Dark Souls being something that only gamers can play is something that comes from its own fan base. Yeah, not the, necessarily the mentality, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, if Dark Souls exists on a console, on PC, whatever, and you load it up and you play it, even if you never actually beat it, that's what you're doing, right? You're playing a video game. You're gaming. Yeah. You would call me a gamer, right? On right. account of I have a freaking backlog. <laughs> even if you'd say I'm not a gamer, no, no, you're, you play Dark Souls, you're, you're in the club now. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a gamer, but I have never played Dark Souls, so what does that make me? You should play Dark Souls. I mean, what? <laughs> let's not, let's I don't not want stop to. it now. Let, let's not stop <laughs> all it. All right, now. all right, sorry. That's one of the situations where, like, a game seems tied so deeply to the idea of identity of gamers. And I'm like, well, I could play 50 other games and just not want to play that one. So Yeah, but none of them would be as good. <laughs> that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> yeah. except, except praising Dark Souls. What else do you do? Uh, well, I'm a game designer at a company called Tabtail. I work in the hyper-casual studio, and I've been working on a couple of games. I can't really talk about them. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been working on some of my uh, own games, uh, independent games. Um, Excellent. Yeah, and uh, that's it. I mean, I've been pretty busy, but nothing uh, interesting uh -huh. that I can talk about. Game design by default is interesting. Like, yeah. even if you can't tell us what it is, it's like, you're working on indie games. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's really different from working on, in, like, a company, because in a company you have, like, something you do. I'm the game designer, I write the design documents, I go through the development and see that the game 
still follows those uh, design documents. And then when you work like on an indie game, you do everything like and it, you understand how tough everyone's job is. Because oh, yeah. you usually when you are the game designer, you're like, yeah, I want the game to work like this. This is how I see it. And this is how it should be. And then when you actually work on it, you're like, oh, this is so complicated. I should change the design so that it, I can actually do this thing. And like as a game design, like you have so many hats and you have to fight with yourself to like settle this, this dispute. And, yeah. uh, this is why I always think it's like incredibly weird when you have those one person games but then it also turns out that like the person who made the game was also like the composer and I'm like so wait you did all the coding and all the design and everything and the music? Yeah. So you're a composer and a designer? How does that work? <laughs> you'll, yeah, sometimes you're Toby Fox and you'll everything and uh, he's not the only one. There are a few very su- successful one-person games like uh, Stardew Valley and stuff. And one of the ga- both of the games we're going to discuss today were designed by a very small team. Uh, but yeah, I, I have two announcements. Uh, one related to the subject of game design and myself. The other related to the podcasts, to the podcast specifically. Um, the first one is a very happy announcement. I was uh, accepted to the team of Modwar, which is a pretty serious, relatively ra- large, like 12-person team. That's kind of large. It's an indie game developed right now, a strategy game, already two years in development. Uh, we actually plan to go into early access in, in a year. And I'm really, like, I'm super excited of that. I'm, I am the writer, like, as... It goes in indie uh, companies. I'm the writer, also a narrative designer, might be a level designer because those things like intertwine and you have a small team. And that's insanely cool. It makes me insanely happy. And that's technically my third job. <laughs> so the other announcement is I can't devote as much time to Games of Future Past because. I love this podcast, it's fun, but what happens is, as you listeners imagine, we play the games we talk about, and it's an incentive to play, which is great, but at certain points it started becoming a chore for me, and nobody wants that, right? We're doing this for fun. Uh, I don't want gaming to become a chore. So what's going to happen is that uh, for the near future, Games of Future Past is going monthly instead of bi-weekly. Uh, but we are also looking into some alternatives, like maybe trying to find another co-host, somebody who can like rotate with me, and uh, sometimes we can do more easily big episodes, because there will be three of us. So Sean and myself are working on that. Listeners, Boris and I love you very much, but sometimes, you know, life takes people in different directions, and they need to figure things out for yourself. It's not about you. <laughs> I feel like I can't even complain about this because technically I stole you from another podcast. So it's like, (laughs) so congratulations on the new position. I'm sure you're going to rock it out as you usually do. And as for the show, we will figure it out. Yeah, we will. I'm sure you will. So let's talk about video games. Yeah. And before we even get started, I do need to specify one very important thing. As Boris mentioned, we sort of bent the rules for today's episode in that we are comparing two games that came out relatively close to each other. One in uh, 2018, like very recently, and one in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. 
Now, the way that I'm justifying this, by the way, I've come up with an excuse, but it's an excuse <laughs> that only works one time. In gaming terms, so much came out in 2017 that I think it counts for like three years. <laughs> yeah. So the math is kind of like, yeah, Valhalla feels like it came out five years ago because really there was a lot of stuff last year. Yeah. Also, technically, it came out in the past. So, I mean... <laughs> that, that justification only works once. It works for this episode. I have burned that card. We will never use it again. Yeah, we won't use that card. We might... Also, rules are made to be broken. Yeah, I like, mean, we make the rules. Yeah, it's your podcast. It's your party. Do whatever you want. Yeah, sure. I don't hold with that anarchist thinking. <laughs> awesome. This is an ordered podcast. Basically, in like the world of Brooklyn Nine-Nine analogies, I'm Santiago and Boris is uh, Peralta. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of the, the situation. I, 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 I can love I be DS? Yeah, you can be DS. <laughs> <laughs> I would have said Gina, but if you want to be DS, that works too. No, uh, Mat- Matan is, is not a Gina, I think. No, I'm not a Gina. I wish I was a Gina. <laughs> I think we all wish we were Gina. Actually, no. Like, the place I work in, my, my main job, we had a sort of Gina there. She left recently. We actually have another Gina. It's a place for Ginas, in a way, I think. <laughs> um, never mind that. But... The comparison that we're making today is between the Red Strings Club and... Uh, Valhalla. Well, okay, technically the game is called VA11 Hall A, but it's pronounced Valhalla. And why don't we start with uh, the new one, the Red Strings Club? Take it away. Alright, so the Red Strings Club came out in uh, 2018, as you said. It's an adventure game by the Deconstruct team, uh, published by Devolver. Uh, it's available on PC, both uh, PC and like Windows, Linux, and Mac. These are the same uh, people who did Gods Will Be Watching. Yeah, right? yes. the same team that made the Gods Will Be Watching, which met with like, I mean, mixed reviews. Uh, mostly, mostly because of the gameplay, like a lot of people said, yeah, the story was interesting, but it played really clunky. Uh, so with their second game, it's also an adventure game made in uh, a game maker, like the last game. Pixel art, it's very, very pretty. It, it takes place in a cyberpunk city. It's ruled by corporations, as one of the characters puts it. Uh, we start in like one of those, you know, freeze frames, scratch record. How did I get here? Guy falling down from a building, a lot of neon lights. You can see like advertisements, I think, in the reflections of the windows. And then you are uh, thrown into playing Donovan. He owns a bar at the city, which is never named. Or the bar owns him, depending on how you yeah. call it. Uh, the Red String Club, that's the name of the club. And uh, he's, uh, he mixes cocktails, he's like like crafting master, and he can craft people's emotions like into his drinks, which is done with a little minigame that we'll talk about soon. Yeah. And 
basically people come in, you fix them drinks, you get them in the mood to answer your questions, and there is like a whole plot, like a cyberpunk yeah. plot about like corporate uh, conspiracy. It's also, I think, important to mention Donovan is not only the best bartender in town, he's also the best information broker in oh, town. Right, right. In a way, that's his main job as an information broker, even though he practically lives in the Red Strings Club. And we are comparing this game to... Valhalla. As John said, VA11 Hall A uh, is the name of the game, and it's important because this is actually an address. VA is some block, uh, 11 is the number of the block, and it's Hall A. Like there's a Hall B, a C, and so forth. Uh, and in this location, in the year 2070X, like unspecified 70s, in a city called Glitch City, also uh, a cyberpunk city, you understand through the game that it is ruled. There is a president, it's a city-state, there's a, an actual prime minister actually to the city, but he was uh, put by the local corporation to oversee the city. So it was developed by Sukeban Games. If I'm not mistaken, a Chilean team. I, I don't want to be mistaken. It's, I remember it's it's South American. I think Chilean, and uh, published by Yisbrid Games. A game also was in development like forever, from what I understand. I played it just recently, but it was like it had several incarnations before, like the the larger, fuller Ah Venezuela. I see. Okay, sorry, well, in Venezuela, and Sukeban uh, Games. You play. Again, a bartender in this uh, in the cyberpunk city named Jill, a young woman working as a bartender in this Valhalla. And Valhalla is not a fancy place. It's actually a very very simple bar. Not a lot of customers. Uh, no complicated mixology. You make drinks by the book. You actually have a book telling you how to mix the cocktails. Uh, none of the ingredients are natural, everything is chemical. Uh, you mix like those chemical things together to make those drinks that try to imitate the alcohols of the past, because those are actually very expensive and rare and hard to get by, like rum and beer and stuff like that. And uh, basically Jill has her friends, her, her uh, usual customers, she has a boss named Dana, which she has a crush on, and you learn about Glitch City and its politics through the game. Just sit with people and hear, like, read the newspapers, uh, blogs, more like, and discover what happens. Now, unlike Red Strings Club, this is not a... An adventure game, this is more of a visual novel. You basically just go through the plot just by clicking. Again, sometimes you mix cocktails. If you fail, the plot continues, you just get less money. Like, the plot continues almost the same. 
except some optional endings and stuff. You do want some people to like you, yeah. But generally, like you just mix stuff and listen to people talk. Am I wrong in thinking that like the relationships that you develop with the customers is kind of like how it works with the visual novel with like relationship meters where yeah yeah okay so yeah. it's like you make the drinks and it's like they like you or they don't like you based yeah, on yeah you they, they are like invisible like in most visual novels you don't see the meters but yeah like the the better you are at understanding their needs and remembering what they like and so forth and so forth uh, you you like can get the five different endings uh two or three of which no, four of which actually can happen at the same time. Like, if you are good friends with someone, you get another panel for your ending telling about your relationship. And also there's a big part of the game is paying your rent. And if you fail, that's actually another ending, like in every visual novel. There's no fail state. The fail state is you get the bad ending, which is you are evicted because you couldn't pay. Well, actually, it's more, it's more cute and funny than that, but... We'll get to that later. Um, those are the games. And listeners, yeah. and you, as you already understand if you didn't before, like cyberpunk bartending. That's not a thing. <laughs> I mean, apparently it's a genre now. Uh, like, <laughs> it I, has more games than the Soulsborne genre. Like, so. <laughs> when I heard about Valhalla around like two years ago, I was like, okay, that sounds extremely cool. And then Red Strings Club comes out. And I'm like, wait. Isn't there already a bartending cyberpunk? Well, to be fair, like it's like cyberpunk really builds on like the tropes of um, the film noir. Yeah. And then, so having a bartender yeah. in like a cyberpunk setting, it's very like it's almost required. Yeah. So that's not like, and then like I guess we're now at a very cyberpunk age. Yeah. Like right now we're on the verge of becoming cyberpunk, like. Or maybe we already are cyberpunk. I yeah, we'll I get mean, to that dis- discussion soon. Because so but, yeah. I I guess it makes sense that we had like two cyberpunk games yeah. featuring bartenders, um, but they are both very different games. I yeah, think. I would agree with that. They like thematically, mechanically, there are some significant differences. Yeah, I mean, even when it comes to like the mixing of the drinks, like they handle it very differently. Like the the Red Strings Club. It has, like, a more interesting mechanic, I guess, like, in mixing the cocktails, because you have, like, several choices of what you're going to do. But in a way, I liked the mixing in Valhalla better. And I'll explain. Because in, like, in the Red Strings Club, the mixing itself was very tiresome. It was nice the first time, but every time I mixed a drink, I was like, oh, God, let this minigame. And it feels like a minigame. Let it be over already, like... The pouring of the bottle, like how you mix pla- uh, drinks in uh, uh, in the Red Strings Club, goes like this: you have like a bunch of bottles on the screen, you click them, you drank with the mouth, and then you like um, you hold the mouth, you hold to... it, and then you have to move the bottle so that the it pulls down the yeah, uh, and the glass. It's so yeah. it's so annoying. You have to like keep holding your mouth button down, which is never good. Like whenever a game makes you do it for like more than a minute. You feel you just it just feels it's wrong. It's annoying, yeah. Yeah, I so it's not fun at all. And then the choices are basically you ask you, you look at the question, you say like, all right, they need to be happy to answer this one, they need to be horny to answer that one. So let's go to the, them, mix them a drink, 
And I mean, in like, in Valhalla, I felt like, all right, I have this book, I need to make the cocktails out there written here, which is pretty... It's kind of boring. Yeah, it's kind of boring. But because you have to understand what kind of drinks they want, like they give you a taste, they give you like, it's old timey, I want something that is colorful, and then you have to go by the tags. I found it a bit more like... Interesting. What Donovan is doing is actively manipulating the emotions of his customers to get information, whereas in Valhalla, Jill has to adapt her drinks to what people want. Yeah, they just ask blatantly <laughs> something, and if they don't know, you need to get a direction from them. Sometimes the advice is clear, and sometimes it's like, you know... Uh, Jim Sterling is asking you to make like very weird. Do you have like a feather in a hat? I'm like, what? What are you yeah. talking about? Yeah. Virgilio. Yeah. As you said in the Red String Club, because you're physically like reaching for those emotions, you also physically pour the drink. Like the mechanics are like you physically hold the, the bottle and then pour it and you have to mix it just right. And I find I it really like that. I found it tedious. I mean, I liked it like as an idea, but playing it was not fun. And because it's uh, a gameplay element, I mean, it's something that you... I mean, most of the game happens in like the conversations. This is like the yeah. fun part of the game. And then there's this part, which is like a mini game that is sort of advertised as the main game, but it's really, it's not fun at all. I had no fun doing it. I just wanted to go back to the conversation. Just let me click on the emotion I want, get that emotion, and then go to the... Because I already had to figure out, like, they had to be horny to answer that question. This is something I had to figure out, like, yeah. through understanding and the that, person. And that was the interesting part. Yeah, and then the, the part of actually pouring the drinks, yeah. not only was it, like, executed in a way that was not fun, it wasn't interesting, because I already knew what I you wanted. You know what you're aiming for, yeah. so you just need to succeed in the minigame to, to get to what you're... Okay, yeah. at first, I see what you're saying. At first I thought that, like, I could discover new emotions by, like, mixing drinks. Yeah, but no, you can't. But you can't, you just know these emotions. This one is up there, this one and, is down there. when the game there. challenges you, it gives you, like, immediately... Uh, like, because the drinks, uh, you have, like, tequila, vodka... Uh, bourbon and absinthe and basically they go down up left and right you see like an emotional range for a person and spots you want to reach so to reach them you pour a certain amount of each drink and then like something is very far in diagonally and the glass is just too small well here's a shaker to mix drinks up ahead like the game challenges you and immediately tells you how to beat the challenge so it's like it's not like it's not a new challenge. It's just a new gimmick to the already existing mechanic, and I agree that in that aspect it wasn't like it was a very, a very ineffective gamification because it didn't yeah. actually gamify the process. I wanted where I want to go, and I and went the there. worst part that it wasn't fun. I mean, yeah. that yeah. was just if you have a gameplay element like that, it has to have to be fun. I have to enjoy pouring the drink. And that's something that is really true about all of the mini games in the Red String Trap. They have a couple. They have one where you do pottery. I love the pottery. I hated it. Okay, I'm the only one. Okay. I did not enjoy the process of the pottery, but mixing and matching the implants. So what what happens during this section? This is the second 
gameplay segment, right? You start with uh, Donovan and the drink mixing, and then the second segment is you're playing an android named Akara who works at this implant factory where people come in and they ask for uh, to be implanted with different modifications that change them in various ways, uh, increasing your social charisma, making you not care about uh, how you're perceived, increased sex appeal, etc., uh, turning off your ethical centers. And what happens is that they show up one after the other with a line in their file explaining what it is they want. Now, they can't articulate clearly what it is that they need. So you are given a list of implants and you have to essentially mold them out of these blocks of like protoplasm. Now, I will agree with Matan that the molding itself is frustrating because, like, in terms of the controls, you have to, like, constantly click in order to get the uh, the table spinning, right, for the pottery. And then you have to, like, use different uh, instruments to carve out specific shapes so that it turns out just right. It's kind of tedious. But the redeeming virtue there is what happens when you start messing with these people's implants, because yeah. there is, like, one correct solution for each person, but there's nothing that stops you from using different implants to try to solve their problems. And one example, I just, I got to tell you guys about this because I laughed for, like, a solid minute. One of the customers that comes in is a businessman, right? He wants to find a way to get to the top. And yeah, yeah. what you're supposed to do is to, I think, to shut off his uh, ethical center so that he will make deals that technically profit the corporation but are terrible, right? They're just bad things to do. But I was like, I don't like this guy. And this was before I knew that, like, there's no consequence to messing up. I'm like, I want to fuck with this guy. So I implanted the sex appeal implant. Uh-huh. I send him out and he comes back with a statement in his file saying, I had no idea oral sex was such an efficient way to get to the top. <laughs> the game really does predict like in very funny ways what happens when you choose the wrong implant. Like it's still technically a decision that affects them, but it doesn't progress you until you pick the right one. Yeah. So this actually, I mean, first, what you said is it's exactly the same as the like mixing game. What's interesting is like figuring out which implant you want to put in the guy, but then actually making the implant was just not fun. It was yeah. like, all right, now I just need to do this and get it done with, and then I can continue with the interesting I, parts. I, I must say, for me, it's almost the other way around in this specific minigame. Really? Making the implant was super fun because I liked how the control worked. You had like these buttons you actually needed to push, like... You, your cursor was just the hand of Akara, and then when she was near the buttons, you needed to move your mouse forward so she pushed the button. It was like it already put me in some Zen mode. Like there was a music button which was just said like while you're walking, you can listen to some music. So I was just shuffling through songs while while cutting the. It was just the so stop. annoying. I, I I really enjoyed this process. I need to protest. Okay. You said, like, the music, right? The fact that there is no EDM remix of Unchained Melody on that radio is so wrong. <laughs> so I was, I was going through this, and what really annoyed me is the fact that there's only one right answer. Yeah. It was 
so pretentious. And to be fair, it makes sense later in the game. Yeah. Like, why is it that Akara actually decides for people what they need instead of giving them what they want? But this extreme pretension, like, I am a writer and I don't like what people tell me about me in social media. So you can, like, put something that blocks profanities. They just stop seeing profanities on social media. But it doesn't work. They come back because, like, now I'm disconnected from my... my fan base and what you should install is making him not care about what people think of him and he's like I'm leaving this cursed city and going to live in the countryside and write peacefully and I'm like mm, yeah okay like mm, fuck society yeah. I'm a writer and fuck technology and the reason I, I raised uh, Gods Will Be Watching previously I played it I couldn't finish it simply because it was like everything about it was extremely cool like I liked the animation I liked uh, I liked where the story was going but something about it felt so pretentious and I feel the Red Strings Lab while yeah. being a game which I enjoyed until the end and finished it it has those extremely pretentious moments like this one like the the guys there really really feel like they want like very ham-fistedly giving me a moral story which I really didn't like yeah, I mean, my biggest problem with the game was that it was so preachy. I mean, it's just... Even when it was, like, genuine and I was like, oh, this is this is an interesting point, it always felt a little preachy. Like, I always felt like the writers wanted me to um, come away with, like, their point of view rather than, like, presenting me with a world that I can dissect and then reach a point of view that might be the ones that the write, like the writers have, but in this game it was really like, really telling it to you yeah. like straight away. Like in that particular segment it was so clear because I tried like every time someone came in I like looked at all of the of the implants and I was like, all right, this guy's problem is this, so I'm going to give him this implant, and I thought that was the right solution, and I could articulate why it was the right solution. But then the guy came back. And he said, like, no, that didn't work for me. But I mean... The game doesn't la let your solution be valid. I did sort of like that, if only because it suggested, like, from a technical perspective, it's because these puzzles only have one solution. But there's also kind of... I like the, the subtler implication that no matter what you do for these people, they keep coming back. Because in a society but it's where not you true, can, because they don't, they, when you reach the right solution, they don't come back. They're happy no, now. No, but the reason that they don't come back in those scenarios is because you end up using like the implants that are quote unquote the correct solution for each of them. Basically, shuts them down, right? Like one of your customers is a cosplayer who is anxious about like negative reception, and you could literally give her every other implant to try and cope with her problem and she won't be satisfied until you hit her with the one that shuts down her desire to even be a cosplayer and she deletes all her social media and that's why she doesn't come back so i kind of like this the implication i don't know if it was communicated super clearly but what it felt like to me was these people we're never satisfied, right? They are cyberpunk inhabitants. They will keep coming back for more mods and more changes and more transformations until you hit them with the thing that it's like, okay, nihilism, you don't care about shit. But that's not true in all cases. I mean, in some of those cases, you just get like, yeah, all right, I'm happy now. 
it's always something that ends up nullifying the reason that they came in. Like the businessman, the correct solution is to shut off his ambition. So he doesn't care anymore. Yeah. Uh, the writer... Yeah, for the cosplayer, it's the will to be famous. And for the writer, is Caring what society thinks about you. And then he's like, I don't want to be a writer anymore. Right? I see now that it's not important or something like that. So it's like... All right, I see your point. I like that idea of all of the other implants could have been the right answers, but this is a cyberpunk society and people... Yeah, they keep coming until you make them not want it. Okay, yeah, that's actually a cool point. And this sort of connects to the whole storyline with Ariadne, right? The whole idea of there's pushback against this constant modification and change. And then, of course, the, the, the real story of what's going on with Akara yeah. And, yeah. and what that whole thing is. So it's about this anxiety of, you know, in a cyberpunk future. Granted, part of this is in my head because I recently watched Altered Carbon. <laughs> you know, that idea that if you were to offer cheap uh, technology that can fundamentally change your personality, some people would just become addicted to it the way they're addicted to social media, right? Yeah. They would just come in every other week for like, today I'd like to feel what it's like to see things uh, all in pink. And the next day they're like, today I'd like to see uh, war simulations everywhere I look. Like they would fuck with themselves Completely yeah. recklessly. And the only thing that would stop them would be like... Yeah, but I wouldn't say that the game follows up on that, like, in that direction. Because it really goes more into, if you had the power to, like, dictate how society would work, would you do it? That's also the main theme of the game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is where they are going for it. Like, those implants, like, they... What they're saying is those implants can affect how you, as a human, behave and act and what you want and what you think. So, basically, if you add all of those connected like if you uh, uh, you know managed it from above like the needs of all humans how would you do it and would you even do it like this is the main theme of the game like i wouldn't say they go into like you always want more and more this is not really where i felt the story took it i think like it's also a question of like is that kind of manipulation from above any different than what donovan does if Donovan is also yeah. manipulating his customers' uh, emotions, like they come in and he fixes drinks that are specifically designed to make them happy, sad, depressed, yeah, the thing paranoid. Is, a drink goes out of your system after a while, and yeah. is But I mean, this is this is the main uh, dichotomy that the game builds. Like, yeah. is uh, this uh, like this sort of manipulation is it different than like me talking with you and changing your mind through words? Like, how is that more natural than like? just going straight to the enzymes that make you feel yeah. whatever you feel and changing it so that you agree with me. There was one weird bit in this game. Like, overall, I got to say that I love this game. I really did. You know, even with the flaws, of, like the mechanical flaws of the uh, minigames, I feel like each one of them, for all the frustration, the story reward that you got at the end of it, I feel like was worth it. Like, I love the relationship between Donovan and the customers, especially Larissa. I loved uh, Akara and her interactions with the customers. The minigame with Brandis and the telephone at the end of the game yeah. was, like, really fun. That was the best gameplay game, part of yeah, the game. Yeah, it was, it was great. Th that sort of offset the mechanical frustration. But it comes so late, though. I mean, it's practically the end of the game, and you have to... Like, struggle through... No, but there are a lot of good parts there, because, again, most of it is conversation, and you have another another segment with Blandis, which was great, uh, the one with the gun. 
Yeah, uh, that was it, pretty it good. Was, it was really good. So I, I gotta say about... So basically Brandis is the good part of the game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the Brandis part much more than I enjoyed the Donovan part. And also, like, I tried playing this game, like, starting it a couple of times, and every time, like, the beginning really wore me down because it was so preachy and it was so pretentious and, I mean, so uh, heavy-handed in everything that it does. And the gameplay part was, I mean, I, I had to struggle through it, like really grinding my teeth, uh, especially because my mouse wasn't working very good. Oh, okay. oh that's the so, thing that'll screw you up, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, I got so frustrated. But uh, once you reach like the F point of the game, like up until the F point of the game, I was like, yeah, this game is all right. Like it has some interesting points, but it's, I mean... Yeah, the thing is, the half point is less than two hours, so it's... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty short, but still, you, you gotta power through the, 